0: Hello, I'm Nick Baker and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips.
1: And I'm Victoria Hillman.
0: And we have with us today a very special guest. We have Dr George McGavin. Hello, George.
2: Hi, George. How are you doing? good thanks you very well thank you i am surviving in lockdown two the sequel it's never <laughs> as good as the first one is it it's not as great as the first time right
0: isn't that there's less insects now <laughs> <Quite>. <laughs> <laughs> that's never a good thing we're gonna skip the news this episode but we're gonna do our sighting so george as the guest have you seen any interest in wildlife recently
2: well, I have, actually. Uh, one of the things I love about the autumn, and it's one of my favourite times of year, are the fungi. And, and I've been out in the woods uh, as often as I can. It's been quite quite wet, actually, and windy. But I love wandering around the woodlands. I, I'm not a great expert on fungi, but I've seen something upwards of 80 species in the, the last week. And, of course, there are lots of things that look like fungi. and Folks often take pictures of them and they put them on the web and say, "What's this fungus?" And I go, "Ah, wait, wait a minute! That isn't a fungus. It, it's a slime mold." Cool. And they go, "Wow!" So I'm I'm being able to introduce lots of people to the wonderful world and very bizarre world of slime molds. But my find this week, I was hunting through a piece of dead wood when I found a glowworm larva. Now, I live near Windsor Great Park, and I don't think I've ever seen an adult glowworm in the park or even in the area. So to find a glowworm larva means that they're, they're obviously here. So I think this summer I'm going to have to ask the park officials if I can have a little nocturnal foray in Windsor Great Park.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. That's I do like glowworms. exciting. I still want to find one neck deep in a snail, like the textbook images here of them, in, right. the larvae. Okay. that'd be cool i'm lucky i've got rain and marsh's nature reserve near me he's got a nice population of them and there's another reserve nearby too so considering it's quite built up we've got quite a few glowworms around someone i know has got them in their back garden yeah and, they live, and they're around the corner from lakeside shopping center so that's pretty good going <laughs> with,
2: with all these things it's just a question of hours if you, if you yeah. put the hours in you will see all your heart's desire indeed
1: very
0: true yeah.
2: Have you seen anything, Vic?
1: I haven't. Well, I say I haven't seen anything. I did see what I believe to be a dragonfly yesterday when I was out on my run. I was running in one direction. It was flying wind assisted in the other direction. So I couldn't tell you what species it was because it was moving pretty quickly. But aside from sightings, my tawny owls are back, which is really exciting. And they started calling again. I heard them, spent lovely 15 minutes or so listening to them kind of early evening yesterday which is absolutely lovely. They're not calling tonight, but we currently have gale force winds and driving rain outside, so I can't really say I'm surprised. <laughs> but how about you, Neil? Anything for you?
0: Only today, really, since the last recording. Well, it's only been a few days since we recorded the last one. <laughs> but again, I saw a raven, not quite as close as last time, still nice, at a pretty close flyby by a buzzard. And I was sitting there talking to a colleague of mine who's about my age, which is mid-30s, we'll say. And we were talking about how if when we were sort of 12 years old, Seeing a buzzard in Essex would have been a remarkable occasion, and we were just watching two of them flying low around a tree as we ate our lunch. It was just rather mad, really. If you think about it. A glimpse to kingfisher. Well, I saw a small bird flying very fast and low over a river, and it was so dull I couldn't see any colour on it. it. Shows you how dull it was today. And. I was doing some habitat creation today, moving some brush around to try and encourage some more bramble growth in a woodland clearing. And there was tons of wolf spiders on the leaf litter, which is quite nice. Probably trying to find someone to tuck away for the winter till I disturb them, poor things. Yeah, it's nothing remarkable, but, you know, nice little things to keep you going through the day when you're working. Well, I think we'd better go on with the main event. It is the one year anniversary special and we have a special guest in Dr George McGavin.
1: Couldn't be more appropriate given both yeah. of our love of invertebrates. Well,
2: you know, this is it. I mean, I I love to get it out there. I mean, so many people, when they say, oh, you're a zoologist, and they instantly imagine that you work on big, hairy things or birds. And and I go, no, no, things with a backbone only make up less than 3% of all known species. (laughs) And if you take the ones that are unknown, it's even smaller than that. So, you know, big, hairy or feathery animals are really quite a small group
0: yeah we have a a running joke on this podcast about birds and mammals the feathery and furry things being Mm -hmm. boring but it's not that they're boring it's just in comparison to vertebrates and reptiles
2: actually neil i i think i agree i think intrinsically they are rather boring i mean they the variety of their behaviors is is pretty low. I mean, they're they're either herbivores or carnivores or whatever, and they might vary things a little bit. But when you look at the invertebrates, the cycles and the behavior that they show are just infinitely more varied and interesting. And you can see it much more easily.
0: I always say, show me an otter that uses, um, well, fart power to move around like a dragonfly nymph. Show me a, a mere, you know, those mere cat men are all there fighting for their territory. And I am saying, yeah, but their heads aren't exploding to, <laughs> to <stop laughs> like termites do. It's just, it's, it, I could, just on pond creatures, I could, I like to wind up Jack Perks, who's a big fish man, and say, yeah, fish are pretty interesting, but compared to the invertebrates that <laughs> you get in a pond or a river, they're oh.
2: nothing. <laughs> they really are. Oh, it's, it's just a question of scale. I mean, everyone's yeah. very obsessed with size, you know. It has to be a big, big thing that you can see and stuff. And you, you really, you have to get into their world. And, and I, I have to say, and if anybody is listening who has a young child or a grandchild, it's coming up to Christmas. Oops, I used the word, sorry. I think we'll this. let you off. It's word. word. It isn't even <laughs> December yet. A hand lens. Buy any small child you know times 10 hand lens. And I, I mean, I can still remember the day I got my first hand lens my god I mean it just opened up this whole world of wonderment and I I'm on my third hand lens now which is pretty good in 60 years and I I still think it's the most wonderful gift I've ever had
0: yeah I mean my aunt bought me a magnifying pot which is basically a hand lens attached to a pot really (laughs) but and yeah I used to put everything in it leaves acorns bugs just just to see things close up which was, yeah. uh, and I think my sister got a, uh, one of these toy microscope things. Oh, uh, yeah, I got one of those, yeah. And And I stole it. Because <laughs> 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 it was awesome. She wasn't using it.
2: You don't want this. What you nah. want? A Hoover? No, no, I'm kidding, kidding. <laughs> well, I want to yeah. leave that. It Actually, it's very true. I mean, when, when I was a kid, 50s, early 60s, you know, it, it was still pretty sexist and you know the boys would get sort of tools and useful applicable toys that would do something and the girls would get you know cookery sets and you know that sort of thing you know which is ridiculous
0: oh not my daughter (laughs) she she comes running up the stairs because she found a spider crawling around on our front room floor or something you know if she finds an insect she has to come and find me to show me fantastic now
2: she she hasn't acquired this this fear of spiders. No. Obviously not. But you see, some kids do. And 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 I I do blame adults uh, because oh, yeah. even if they try to hide it, even if they try to, to look interested, kids are very savvy. They're very clued up on responses. And and although you're pretending to go, Oh, oh look darling, that's nice. That's a, that's a nice spider. Yeah <laughs> they can tell <laughs> it's absolutely terrified. And And it's a shame, as as I always point out to folks, there are, of the $400 pieces of spider in Britain, only about 8 or 10 of them are physically strong enough, big enough to break your skin. And nobody, as far as I know, has ever died of a spider bite in the UK. It just hasn't happened because they're they're all small, they're not particularly venomous. And yet, a large percentage of the British population are scared about spiders and if you go to australia where there actually are spiders that can kill you the incidence of spider fear is much less yeah funny,
1: it? it's, it's really interesting isn't it because it's just my mom would have you know she never wanted to pass any fears on to us and she's i think she's definitely got better with spiders over the years yeah. and like with my with our nieces now we you know we always encourage them to really kind of love those little cool eight-legged creatures hanging around in our in our houses with us
2: I mean, if family has a, a spider phobia, you know, start off with jumping spiders because they're just oh, yeah. cute with the big eyes. so cute! Look at you, and they sort of turn their heads and go, well, what, "What are you doing?" You know. <laughs> you know, house spiders. You can sort of work up to house spiders, I suppose.
0: Yeah,
1: I think when you when you sit and watch house spiders, though, we had one. I think it was actually last winter, and yeah, he we actually named him. He was named Brian, Brian the spider, and he would come upstairs in the evening come through come through the door into the sitting room take a look at us take a look at the tv and then just wander out again
2: okay, uh, he was
1: such a fantastic little character on um, yeah exactly he's like oh i don't like this i'm gonna go off and find something else to do My
2: girl which is what in fact he, he's after
1: yes very much so
0: and they don't come out of the plug <laughs> hole they fall into the
2: bath Yeah. i would have thought people would have worked this out there is a, a u-bend Full of water behind the plug, any plug in your house, and they can't get down out, out the plug hole. You know, so if if you are one of these people who are slightly fearful of spiders and you find them in your bath, just always have a bit of string or twine tied onto your tap, hanging into the bath, so that the spider will eventually wander around, find the end of the bit of twine hanging down, and climb up it. And escape, and then, then you will even have to put them in the glass and, and
0: I always tell people if they don't like spiders to leave the daddy long legs or cellar spiders in, yep. in their house because i've I've seen a dead house spider in in the web of one of those because they will drop down and eat them, won't they it's They they insane. are fantastic.
2: in fact that that's one of their main interests is other spiders, and of course, if you're really lucky you might find a spitting spider. Now, I had a a spitting spider in my office here for a few months and I was just desperate to see it because I haven't seen it spit. I haven't, I've seen drawings of it. Uh, I don't think anyone's actually filmed it yet. We we have tried to film it, but it's, it's just an amazing, a unique mechanism. The only spider, the only animal in the world who shoots out twin jets of sticky glue, you know, to pin down the prey and hold it in place i mean that's just phenomenal
0: i've seen two but I mean, my mum had has them in her house Bob, and, uh,
2: have you seen them actually no spiders? i'd no. love to I know i would love to love to love it before i die which let's face it is probably closer than you uh, <laughs> Neil, I, uh know,
0: I do some risky things sometimes
2: <laughs> see a spitting spider actually spitting and catching a fly that would just be phenomenal i can go i can go now i can go now I've i want
0: that it. and a um a raft spider catching a fish oh, one i'd like to see some any sort of vertebrae even a new or i don't don't say it too loud in front of Vic because she loves frogs a frog would be good
2: Small froglet sorry mm. mm. right, yes okay
0: yeah. <laughs> you're just winding oh. me up now now i am yes yeah yeah i'm getting gay <laughs> No, we're going back to the fear thing i had a i've been obsessed with ponds it's the pond man account on twitter well, for as long as I can remember. But if I found a leech, I'd stop pond dipping because I was terrified of them. And I do education with children. And when I started doing that, I thought there's no way I can, you know, if I start conveying this fear, it's going to put them off pond creatures, which I didn't want to happen. And I did manage to. Well, by the time I was an adult, I got over it mostly, but I can now pick up a leech. Yeah. Um, although, although when I went looking for medicinal leeches, I'd uh, <laughs> I'd yeah. let Naomi, who had the schedule. I said, oh, you've got the schedule five license. You better handle I, <laughs> I, I had, I had to.
2: I made a film on the One Show a few years back where we went down to. Oh, where was it now?
0: Was it Dungeness?
2: Romney Marsh, I think it was. Yeah, Dungeon
0: Dungeons from. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that one. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and I, and I had to stand with my bare legs in this uh, wet area until a leech got 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 hold of me, which it did on my on my ankle. And it, it's fed and fed and fed on my ankle. And those fantastic jaws, the sort three-bladed jaws. Anyway, it's, it eventually had its fill and fell off, which was fine. It was all filmed in glorious m- macro. And then I put on my socks and my boots, and I drove home after that. Well, <laughs> of course, <because laughs> it just keeps bleeding. It just keeps bleeding into in your boot. And by the time I got home, which is about a four-hour drive, and I took off my boot, there was this. Great a uh, glob great uh. glob of it of sort of half set jelly like blood <laughs> so came out of my boot <laughs> and it went on bleeding for about five six hours horrendous because that, that, that's what makes them so incredibly valuable in surgery that, that there are some kinds of surgery where you, you don't want a clot to happen at all if you're say joining arteries or veins or something and they use leech extract you know to basically make sure that that there aren't any clots forming
0: so we've all discussed why invertebrates are brilliant but do you remember what got you into it in the first place was it just the hand lens and looking around or is there any particular sort of seeing some animal that triggered Mm -hmm. your interest you think
2: It, it started pretty early i mean i can't really remember a an exact incident where I thought, yeah, this is it. I mean, from a very early age, five or six, I I was just fascinated by the natural world. I was interested in other things too, but as far as I was concerned, You know, if if you took away all the animals and plants, what do you have left? I mean, (laughs) zero, basically. And I remember seeing, I mean, Attenborough's been around for such a long time. God, I do remember, it must have been about 10, and I was watching on our tiny black and white screen, and it was a segment about the mating habits of the garden spider. And, (laughs) And it was just fantastic little bit where Attenborough described as it was filmed here and the male fills his pops with sperm and advances cautiously towards the female and and I was just I mean wow I mean a it's sex and this is all pretty new to me you know age 10 and the spiders had sex as well was like whoa (laughs) and you can watch it wow this is amazing and and I was absolutely captivated uh, yeah, to see uh, firsthand how a, a male spider in, inserts his pulp into the epigyne. And I was going, oh, yeah, I got to see this. I see and then it sort of went on from there. And, and when I went to Edinburgh University to do my degree in zoology, uh, in our second year, we went off to, for a field course to the west coast of Scotland. And all of my classmates, I mean, all of them were looking for badgers and owls and worms and buzzards and whatever. It's big stuff, you know, and not finding them, not seeing them because big animals are hard to work on. They're quite rare. They're hard to see. And yet at our feet were literally gazillions of wood ants just running about in their millions doing interesting stuff. And I said, look, they, they, why don't we look at these? These are everywhere. I wonder what they're doing. And they've got these big nests and they're da, there. Da, da. And I, I knew then that um, insects were the main event on Earth, which, of course, they, they are. And they are the engines of ecology. You take insects away. Well, I mean, if you don't have insects, you, you lose all the higher animals anyway because the majority of them eat insects. But, but I thought, you know, if you call yourself a zoologist or an ecologist and you don't understand what insects are doing, you understand nothing. You, you understand just two percent or less of what's actually happening.
1: Yeah, I have hmm. to totally agree on that one. I mean, when I was doing my degree, I have to admit my my favourite modules were invertebrate zoology, and we actually did poisons, venoms, and toxins of the marine environment, which all came from invertebrates, yeah. which was also absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, but they they were just my favourite modules because that was you know we one of our field courses was to go rock pooling yeah on the coast of North Wales, and it's like take a group of students out let's go rock pooling and it was just it's like the best field course i've ever done and you know you have people there and they're like oh but we want to see this that and the other and i was like look at all this like other really cool stuff that's in here
2: absolutely uh, victoria and that that's exactly how i started as well as a kid i, I went you know, on the holiday we went off to the the you know, coast of scotland and, and i would spend most of the day if we were near ashore in a rock pool and and the majority of adults and kids are fascinated. They just don't know anything. So whenever I'm out and about and I'm having a uh, you know a, a look in a rock pool, if anybody comes up and says well, what are you doing, I, I try and introduce them to the wonders of a, of a rock pool. I mean, we're an island and there are rock pools all around us. It is. One of the most fascinating things to do, and you can lose yourself for two or three hours with just completely unaware that time has gone past simply by just looking at what's happening in a, in a pool. It's marine ponds. Of course they're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there is
0: that.
2: <laughs> marine ponds, my yeah. So, yes, I've, I've always been into entomology, invertebrates in general. If I had my time again, I'd do exactly the same thing. I think that
1: they just, I mean, they just don't, I'll see you know we're we're already won over because we, we yeah. both absolutely love them anyway but it's just they're they just don't get enough love they really don't yeah you know for such fascinating and even in your own back garden on your front lawn or whatever there's so much you can actually find you don't have to go far like I said you want to study like big things there's a lot of effort that has to go into it they move around a lot more you could just step outside your front door and find some really cool invertebrates.
2: Well, I've I've often said, and I'll say it again, we know how many species of insect there are in the UK. It's about 21,000 or so. We know what they are. We know roughly what they do. But the details of their cycles and behavior, we really don't know anything about in the main. An averagely intelligent eight-year-old child equipped with a hand lens could go and make a discovery in their back garden very, very easily. See something which hadn't been seen by before, describe a behavior. You know, it's, it's not all been done. And this is, of course, is a great myth that folks have. They think, oh, it's all been done, all, all the British insects, we know what they do it? no we don't you know it's all there and it, it's just endless enjoyment watching wildlife is i think one of the best things you can spend your time on earth doing <laughs> I, I can't think of it well we won't get any argument from us <laughs>
1: no. also, like you said you know there, there's so much we don't know i mean i i have a couple of sites that i you know i i know pretty well in terms of roughly what's there and i was actually i was like a kid in the candy store honestly i was just over the moon beyond excited when a couple of years ago i was actually looking for frogs this is not uncommon for me i have a love of frog but i actually found something that i never thought i would see in the uk yeah you know, i've seen tv programs i've seen them appear in tv programs on the tropics and that and that was a zombie snail
2: Oh wow!
1: I've never wow. ever thought I would see one in the UK, and I've seen one on one of my local nature reserves, and it's the first time that it's been recorded there.
2: A zombie snail. So this is one that's been infected by some fluke or other, and it's <laughs> crawled up into the, it. Its eye stalks, is it?
1: Yeah. So it makes a little brood sac in those... the eye stalks, and they actually what? properly pulsate. And... Yeah.
2: Oh my God. Well, oh, you are lucky. It's amazing. <laughs> Have a
0: camera.
1: Yes, I, have, I actually have photos
0: of it. Oh, They're good pictures as well, George. <laughs>
2: very good. That, of course, is a fantastic instance of a cycle involving three organisms. And the snail, for the cycle to be completed, has to be eaten by a bird. And because it's got great pulsing eye stalks, the bird goes, chomp, chomp, chomp. And then the fluke then completes its, you know, yeah. from, fantastic. And then the bird goes, And then it comes and the whole thing starts again.
1: It's the way the... Because I actually read read into the whole life cycle when I was writing my book about it because it just fascinated me and I thought, you know, I I need to investigate this more. And it's the fact it changes the behaviour of the snail as well. So normally the snail would be hiding away in the middle of the day. This thing is right out in the open.
2: Now I'm trying to remember the name of the snail.
1: This was the amber snail. Right. And... Can't remember the Latin name off the top of my head and my books are all downstairs. Oh, unless Neil's sort of got yet. my book there. Uh, oh, it's upstairs.
2: Lucos, L- paradox, is it L- L- oh, I'll go That's for my sorry. I must learn the name again. Yeah, I mean, this, this yeah. is the trouble. Drop- I, I know so many animal names that my brain is now full of, of stuff and and I can and if I get a new one there's, something has to fall out the yeah. the end, you know.
0: The classic Homer Simpson quote, isn't it? Yeah. Every time I learn something new, it pushes something older. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember there's another common name for the snail as well and i can't remember what that is either i want to say bladder snail but i think that's right pond
2: is, but, it's a pond it's a pond snail it's yeah it.
0: it's, it's a semi-aquatic thing isn't it it's sort oh. of it doesn't it can go under the water but it doesn't live under there if you know oh. what i mean it's you find well, out the vegetation around it
2: hence enjoy, it gets the bird poo I'm i guess very envious very envious and you will have to send me the pictures of mm. said snail
1: i will and i will do that tomorrow actually while i remember excellent
0: yeah, I mean, my, my moment of that was, although I was taken to see them, I saw that, because you've seen the triops up in Cravelock Oh, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. i got the ones in the New Forest, and they're huge, aren't they? You don't, ex- are you, you read, they're big, they're okay, not huge. But I, I just, I, I, you know, they're 10 centimetres, not huge for a British insect. <laughs> well, insect? <gasps> Crustacean. And, yeah, that was something I'd seen in a book in the deserts in, actually, it was that Bugs magazine, I think it was, The Deserts of Australia, yeah. And I yes. thought oh one day when I go to Australia I'll see it and then when I found out they're in the UK but of course you've got, you've got to time it perfectly haven't you because they only come out at the right temperature, the right amount of rainfall at the right time after being dry long enough, I'm the only person uh, that, that's filmed them in situ I think in the UK
2: That film that we made was one of these weird <laughs> events where we, we for, for some reason the guy who was driving, we, we went on to Glasgow and I was hoping to fly back from Glasgow, having been all the way up to Scotland. Anyway, I arrive at at Glasgow airport only to discover I haven't got my driving license or my passport. I try and blag it. And the girl yeah. was going, look, George, we know who you are. I We mm. know, but you can't fly because we haven't got your passport or your driving license. But i got to go home. Well, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. So I then had to run, get a taxi and go to Central Station and try and get a sleeper. <laughs> and the girl there said oh i'm sorry oh it's you george hello how are you doing i said yeah yeah have, have you got a sleeper bunk she said well no we haven't i'm afraid i oh, said i'll squeeze you in somewhere so <laughs> oh, god i have never gone to an airport without a passport mm. again classic Classic <laughs> idiot yeah should we go
1: with yeah, could... some of the questions that we've been yeah let's Senate. have one of the questions um so the first one actually comes from my best friend in fact christine we Went to uni together. We actually studied zoology together and both keep that love of cool stuff. And she would like to know, when you said a moth that you'd caught produced a vile tasting fluid, Yes. why did you taste it? Had you tasted it before or did you just want to check?
2: Oh, I remember that. Yes, that (laughs) was. We were filming at the top of a volcanic crater rim. That was Lost Land of the Volcano. And I set up a trap on the very top of the rim of this crater, which is clothed in a, a sort of forest it's not very tall but but anyway and it was an amazing event because we'd filmed me spreading out the sheet which had been filmed by a helicopter about a mile away it was so far away I couldn't even hear it but it, it had a camera on board which could film me and the sheet almost full frame from a mile and then it pulled back to reveal this sheet as a tiny little speck a dot in this vastness of green which was a great shot well that evening we had to actually use the trap and catch the moths and it started to rain and it, it rained and rained and rained and I said To our director, I said, oh, well, that's a shame, mate. We won't be doing any moth trapping tonight. He said, oh, yes, you will, because this is the last night. And that shot has cost us X thousand pounds. And we can't use that shot unless you catch some (laughs) moths. So (laughs) I, I was going, "Okay, well, don't blame me. Don't blame me if you don't get any moths. Well, the reality was completely the opposite. It was tipping down. And yet it was I was standing there just swarms in moths. There were just it was like it was like somebody was throwing them at me out of a pail, just bucketfuls of moths. Yes, and it was incredibly rich. And what struck me then was this is a, a very unusual habitat the bulbs don't work over a a very large range anyway so all of the stuff that we saw there had come from a a relatively small area and of course as global warming proceeds altitudinal ranges shift upwards so everything that's lower down has to move up a bit and then they move up a bit but the stuff that's at the top anyway has nowhere to go so the, the reality is that the majority of these very high altitude adapted species will just simply go Now, in answer to your question, no, I hadn't tasted it before, but I knew that these moths produce this stuff. Arctids have this sort of horrid foam. It's acrid. It's not very nice, but it's not fatal. So I did, of course, because it's TV, I'm afraid, show and tell, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you can't just they expect you to bleed a bit on these shows. They, in fact, they rather hope you do injure yourself a bit, leading or being sick or whatever it is. Everything up to dying is fine, you know. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's a very strong taste, very, very foul taste. Mm. And, of course, that's exactly what the moth wants. Any bird who might have a, a crack at it will taste this foul-smelling foam. And that's it. Bang, off, mm. off he goes. So any bird that's naive will soon learn that that moth that looks like that is not worth attacking or indeed any entomologist should realize (laughs) that it's not
1: (laughs) Fancies having a taste
0: (laughs) well that brings us nicely on to the next question which is how did your broadcasting wildlife presenting career whatever you want to call it begin
2: Um, how long have you gotten there um okay (laughs) very briefly I have a stammer. I've had a stammer since I was a kid. It was very, very bad. It got worse and worse till I was 14 when I was mute for a year because there was no point in speaking at all, none. So for the, from the age of 14 to 15, I don't think I uttered a single word to anybody at home or at school. Eventually, I went to speech class and we did various things. And of course, I still had a stammer pretty badly up until I was about 40. I still have it. You, you don't ever get cured of it. You just learn how to... Walk work around it but if you had come back from now to my 14 year old self and said hello george you're going to be a university lecturer at oxford and when you've done that for 25 years you're going to become a television presenter i would have gone surely not but how it started i do have a passion for the natural world and I do want to share it it's rather annoying that I have this hour because that's what I really like doing which is why I ended up in teaching because I love to share it I love to show people how fantastic it is and of course it's a very short but sideways step from doing Oxford Oxford classes tutorials to doing a program well Attenborough had, was just about to make Life in the Undergrowth and I was the chief scientific advisor on it and I basically had re- read through all the scripts and, and make various corrections and, and so on. Yes, yes, corrections, my goodness, surely not. And the next year I was approached and they said, you know, we're, we're having a trip to Borneo and I imagined it would be the same sort of deal. I would have to read all the scripts and make suggestions. No, 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 Josh, you're, you're coming along. Oh, my God, I'm meant to be on camera. Oh, oh, I see. Ah, right. <laughs> and... <laughs> The early stages in my career on TV and radio, as well, were utterly terrifying. I really thought I can't do this. I can't do this. It's it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. But then, of course, gradually you think, actually, yeah, this is okay. I can, I can do this. And the expeditions were pretty new when they they started. There were there was a it was a brand new idea to take a team into a jungle somewhere. Unscripted lots of kits, and just film the hell out of it just as it happens, no prearranged stuff, just film it. so you need to know enough to be able to talk in an interesting way about anything you might see and I am re- reminded of a a program about oceans that I saw many years ago when two American biologists were swimming with a you know scuba gear and their oblivion and then so something swims past this guy and he goes, Hey, what was that? And the other guy goes, it was a fish. <laughs> I go, man, even I know it's a fish. <laughs> you can't say something more than it's a fish. You shouldn't be doing this. So then it just went from there and we did five in the end. And then I got involved in the one show and I've done other programs. So I made, in the last 10 or 13 years, I've made about 18, 90 short films for The One Show, which is really good, because it gives a a vehicle for insects and spiders which you would never see on TV in the UK. I've made about 18 other films about oak trees, about decay, about landfill, about, you know, all sorts of things. And it has been, I've been extremely fortunate because my first job at Oxford was a dream job. And now I'm suddenly... In the middle of a a second dream job.
0: Brilliant! I remember it, it must have been it was a volcano was the first one, wasn't it? The Lost Land no, no. series.
2: Uh, Expedition Borneo was the first one, which oh, was known yes, as Five Half Hours. The next mm-hmm. one was Lost Land of the Jaguar. Then oh, it was it, yeah. Lost on the Volcano, then Lost on the Tiger, and then The Dark.
0: I think that's the first time I saw you on TV, which probably was, from the sound of it, your first time on telly, was it cuts to you on the forest floor, and there's a huge hollow log, and you just crawl into it. <laughs> and I was watching it with my mum, and I turned and I went, I
2: like this, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. No, Neil, I can tell you a story about that, because yeah. I saw the log, and it was just huge. It was over 100 feet long, completely straight, hollowed out all the way. It was like a large peat-filled tube and it was just hoaching the stuff and i said to the director let's let's go in there and she said oh no 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 you're not going in there mate i said well actually i am going in there because i'm a biologist and this is what i do so you've got five minutes to get a camera or all you'll see is my feet (laughs) (laughs) so They went, oh, get a camera, quick, get a camera. He's going in. Oh, my God. And in fact, heaps of the audience thought that they made me go in there. It was completely the other way around, that they were trying to stop me from going. Anyway, the the cameraman went in about 10 feet and then said, no, sorry, man, I've had enough. So he had this (laughs) Sony Handycam and I had to actually film myself. (laughs) And it was just it was absolutely the most wonderful experience i guess i i then had to hack myself out because because it got so so tight in the end i sort of got stuck and i thought we it would be more <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. if i emerged like a beetle grub <laughs> through, yeah. through the side of it it was just great but i did itch for about two weeks after that i was covered yes, covered in bites And I have no idea what they were because I couldn't see anything. They must have been tiny little acarines, But I was just covered head to foot in red bites.
0: I'd have been a bit nervous about a sculopendra centipede or a scorpion or something. But I imagine you'd probably have to put some weight in them to get bitten or something.
2: I do. I don't know know about that, actually. I I did think about that, obviously. But it was quite a, Mm. a, a straight tree. And I had a big head torch. And I could see... I could oh, see right. at least five feet ahead accurately. So I mean, I mean, if there had been a, a curled up snake, which was my main concern. Oh yeah. I would back yeah. out. <laughs> oh, that's
0: <laughs> not interesting. It's a vertebrate <laughs> to back up and out. Yeah,
2: Vertebrates. Christ.
0: Yeah, that, so it, watching... it it, it yeah.
2: was fantastic, and that that particular sequence is one that lots of folks say, "Oh, that was amazing," and and it was.
1: i think think that's one thing that comes across in like in any of the programs that people might have seen you in yeah it's just you're completely i mean it's actually genuine enthusiasm and love for what you do and that really comes across and that Mm. i think really then helps kind of inspire other people yeah you can tell with you it's just totally genuine you're so really excited about all this stuff i think that's what makes it so great
2: you're absolutely right and i think that's why i've been asked to do it again and again because because i am enthusiastic about it and and but i have to say if you're not enthusiastic about what you're doing you shouldn't be doing it and i find it really irritating when i see other presenters who just sound as if they (laughs) they couldn't be asked basically you know yeah well this is quite interesting isn't it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah sort of uh it's a frog isn't it yeah anyway (laughs) yes
0: no no i I know what you mean i have i have seen it uh, there's been presenters that i like in other shows and then i'm looking at and i'm going i can think of three or four presenters off the top of my head that would be doing a better job of you know infusing people about this thing here and it's it's they're making
2: me bored of it and i like (laughs) yeah it, it is genuinely exciting and what the crew does and it's a very smart trick is that i don't want to see anything until the camera's on it I, I don't want to see anything until I can see a red glow off a camera because that excitement of seeing something for the first time, you cannot act that. You can't make it up. it's it's It has to be a first time. It's a one-off. It's a one-take. And if the crew see anything interesting on a jungle trail, they will ask me to sit down and they'll put a bag over my head and say, don't move, we'll call you in a minute, and they'll then get the cameras in the right position and the lights, or whatever has to be done, and then say, oh, okay, George, forward, forward, right? Hood off, right? And of course, <laughs> I will then see what I'm supposed to see. And it'll be real, it'll be genuine. And if you have to do a retake, it's very difficult to capture that glorious excitement of seeing a giant cricket or whatever it happens to be, you know, for the first time. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you
1: know, I can completely... Relate to that first time. There's a species I've wanted to see for a very long time, and and I've spent several years trying to find it. And eventually, a couple of years ago, I did actually see it for the first ever time, and it was a European tree frog.
2: Okay, <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you're right.
1: <laughs> I know it's a vertebrate, but it's a frog, and they also don't get as much love as they really should get. The first time I saw one in the wild that I'd found myself as well. And there was no one else around me. It was just me. I think people in the nearest village probably heard my screams of joy. I was so excited.
2: I can feel your joy. Yeah. I- and it's that joy, and especially when, when you become more more of an expert. And you, I mean, we, we had, that's one of the, the great joys on these expeditions that we did was we we had three or four or five of the best people. We had a frog expert. We had a bird expert. And on the lost land of the volcano, we, we had a guy called Alan Allenson from Hawaii who was just brilliant at frogs he he hopped off the helicopter and he heard a call sort of like 50 yards away and he went that's a new species of Hylies. you know he did he, knew, wow. <laughs> he did the thing he just he knew the calls and he went that's a new species of Hylies. and and sure enough in about a week's time he did find it just that that sheer expertise it's just wonderful it's one thing to know all the
0: calls it's one thing to know them all so well you recognize one that doesn't fit with the ones you know you know that's another level of expertise isn't it maybe one day i'll be that good yeah. <laughs> something I'm, I, I'm, I'm at the level now that if, if i see a dragonfly species in the uk and it wasn't one that was a normal one i'd probably know that now but uh, there's only about 50 of them to know so it's not too hard i think
1: it's just it's spending that time learning yeah. isn't it i mean you know one thing that i've been trying to do myself over the last couple of years is try and identify crickets and grasshoppers by their Mm. call. and you know we don't have that many in this country so it's an easy place to start
2: yeah you you have to start somewhere i mean i couldn't i mean i i mean it's not i mean i'm i've become a bit of a sort of everything man so i i don't spend enough time on anything but i'm i'm finding as i get older i'm i'm finding spiders very interesting you know and of course, they're fantastic to work on because the, the, the male organs that, that are so fascinating. And you, but that's the only way often of being sure that you've got the right thing or the species that you hope it is or imagine it is. You have to look at the parts. Yeah, it's just, I mean, endlessly fascinating, endlessly fascinating.
0: I could, I could spend hours watching raft spiders or water spiders. I've actually kept both of them captive for a little while. And it's, they're just... You just just watching. Uh, I've, I guess you've seen water spiders make, trying to make their web under the water and agronautia Aquatica, is I think it is. Spiders just brilliant. <laughs> but I think oh.
1: that actually leads really well into. Um, we had a question from Grace Clifford through our Facebook page. Hi Grace, and she, said she wanted us to ask, what's been the most unexpected thing you've learned or seen, and how has that impacted you?
2: Gosh, that's a good question. (laughs) It is a really good question, isn't it? Rex, that is a good question. What's the most unexpected thing I found out and how it's impacted me? Well, I'll tell you, and it's not actually to do with insects particularly or anything else. We were filming The Dark and in Venezuela we had to fly up to the top of a tapui and then we had to abseil and climb down into this ravine into a cave we were going to spend about a week in this cave because i was actually hunting for we eventually found this cave cricket, although it isn't cave adapted, it's it's on the way to being adapted for caves, but it swims, it, it does breaststroke, it's huge. And, and of course, <laughs> eventually I found it went absolutely hysterical with joy and it sank its mandibles into my finger. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's by the bye. But what happened was the the crew and the climbing mean crew and everybody we we abseiled down into this cave and then they realised that they hadn't brought the stuff that they should have brought and I didn't I was not up to climbing out this it's about a three hundred foot abseil so it'd be a three hundred foot climb up and I said well, I'll just stay here with the kit in the cave while you you go off and bring the stuff that you should have brought as well so I lay down in this cave and to save head torch battery because we're going to be in there for like a week and i turned everything off and i just sat quietly in this profound darkness i mean profound darkness just total darkness and the stream that flows through it was tinkling and splashing over the rocks and stones and within about half an hour i could hear things i was hearing a child's voice I was hearing crying children little noises I was here I was even hearing a voice saying over here over here and because your eyes of course are your main input and when you're deprived of that your brain this massive big organ you've got is just frantically trying to get information about your environment and all you have is your ears which are not Brilliant, and the stream was just making all these random tinkles and splashes, and your brain's just making it up. I mean, and after an hour, I, you know, I was feeling really quite scared, actually. I mean, not of the dark, but just just, just alarmed because of all these things I thought I could hear. And it was about three hours before everybody came back, and I was very glad that they came back. Um, but I could I could imagine how if you were deprived, if you were being, you know, tortured in some way—that—that that would be a, a a very scary thing to do, very alarming. And it it taught me that I I have there are things that I can't do, and I'm I'm okay on a a tight squeeze in a rock system, up to a point. But there are times when you think actually uh, I can't do this. I, uh, I can't can't do this anymore. Yeah. So it, it was it was it, interesting, interesting. Yeah. And of course yeah. the other one, obvious one, of course, never show off. Rule number one: never show oh, yeah. off. Ever. You will come a cropper straight away, as I did, showing a group of idols around a jungle after dark in Costa Rica, and I find this big scorpion. Uh, uh, <laughs> I showed them the ultraviolet torch. Look look see how it glows in the dark. and dark is all Mars now. I'll just I'll just pick this one up. You can pick it up very easily. by and it nailed the thumb. Oh my god. Got me <laughs> right on the thumb. And the pain. Jesus. Pulsing pain. And I, I pretended that it didn't really hurt. But I think everybody knew that it did hurt. And after about an hour, like, I I think we've we've had enough tonight. I think I'll have to go back uh-huh. home and uh, I got into bed and this it my thumb was still pulsing throbbing like mad and the strange thing in the morning what whatever's in that particular scorpion venoms you know toxin affected how i tasted things and in the morning the food that i was eating which is pretty spicy in the morning, and it it tasted intensely of strawberries <laughs> <laughs> There were no strawberries around. And I had this really bizarre sense of taste for, like, a whole day. Very interesting. And I'm I'm sure that, that there's some very interesting areas of research there. Yeah. But, yeah, so that, that's it. Don't ever show off. Uh, <laughs> you will come unstuck.
0: I love it when you – I have accidentally showed off in the past and got away with it. But, yes, that is a good – a particular one I've done – Two or three times is you've got a group of kids and there's a a common data dragonfly flying around, yeah, and you stand there and be a slightly better sunnier perch. you go if I do this, it might land on my hand, and mm. within seconds it lands on your hand, and you get to feel really smug, and the kids think you're some sort of dragonfly whisperer, but that that was kind of you always do you don't show off that you go well this might not work, oh, it's landed on my hand now um, <laughs> and then it lands on the teacher's head, which is and then they sort of oh, well, I've been outdone now <laughs>
2: boring. yeah, What's The teacher's mean? got
0: it on his head.
1: We've got a couple more questions. Yeah. Uh, and this is, it's a twist on the what's your favourite bug. Mm. Um, so it's not a straightforward what's your favourite. So we've got two, one from Grace and one from Christine. So Christine's is, what is the most interesting invertebrate to you and why? Well,
2: the most interesting invertebrate to me has got to be the human botfly. This is a cracker, the human botfly. It's about the size of a bumblebee, big fly. And yet... It lays its eggs in human beings on their face, on their head, on their arms. It also lays eggs on, on other things. How the hell does a large bee sized fly get its eggs into, say, your eyelid or your scalp? Well, of course, it doesn't actually lay eggs directly. What? the human bot fly does is it catches a midge or a mosquito a smaller fly that feeds on blood and it holds it very gently and it lays a little raft of eggs on the abdomen on the underside of the abdomen of the blood-feeding fly which it then lets go now this is just stupendous so off it goes fly my beauty and (laughs) and then you know you're asleep And a mosquito lands on under your eyelid or on the top of your scalp. And as it's feeding on your blood, the heat from your skin causes the bot fly eggs to hatch. And they hatch almost instantaneously and go straight into your skin. And then they start to feed in your skin and they get bigger and bigger. They have rows of... Back recurved hooks, so they're very hard to pull out. They get bigger and bigger and a big boil forms, and they, they have to breathe air, so they, they stick their spiracles up through the hole and, and <laughs> breathe. Now, the question is, how does this evolve? Now, I've actually asked this of the great Richard Dawkins. I said, Richard Dawkins, how does this evolve? How How can this be? How can surely... There must be a creator who invented this, who's a very cruel creator who thinks I must invent botflies to torment everybody. Because at some point, an ancestral fly, the ancestral botfly, would have laid its eggs directly. How do you get from laying directly on a host's skin to catching a mosquito and then laying eggs on it, letting it go? And because the botfly has no idea whether its eggs will survive or what the fly will land on, how it will feed. Absolutely fantastic. Just fantastic. Now, when we were filming in Guyana, I wanted a botfly. I was wondering about with my my sleeves rolled up. There, <laughs> there, just hoping to God that I would get a botfly. Well, end of the filming, I hadn't got a botfly. But our cameraman did get a botfly. Damn his eyes. He got a fly i he Anyway, he's an Irish guy, super guy, and a brilliant at his job. And he said to me, uh, "George, I can I can hear something scratching in my head. Oh. I can hear. It. <laughs> he could hear this thing going, <laughs> eating his scalp. And I said, "Oh, it's a botfly. How fantastic! He said, it's not fantastic at all. Get it out." And I said, "No, oh, no, no, no. It's much too dangerous. We we have to wait till it's bigger before I get it out." <laughs> Only because I wanted a bigger specimen with really. that was the that was the I hope I hope he doesn't hear this show He's gonna <laughs> but um yeah tremendous I mean that has got to be one of the most bizarre things fabulous
0: I think we're at Erica, we were Eric of Canada tell me a bit about that fly it's amazing Yes, like you say it's hard to think how that could have evolved i imagine maybe they used to grab mosquitoes when they landed on the human to spread the eggs even further when they were laying them directly i don't know there's so many different possibilities there or they were smaller i don't know they
2: they would have been smaller i think yeah it's just it's just you know how how you make that leap and it and it has to be it It can't be a partial. It it must be, you must do it or not. It's either Mm -hmm. lay directly or use a proxy insight. But how that would gradually happen, I'm I'm not sure. And I I, I did not get a reasonable answer from Richard Dawkins either. That
1: is interesting. Like I said, there can't really be any intermediate stage, can there?
2: Well, it's Mm -hmm. it's hard to see what that would be. And uh, of course, course, the creationists love it, of course. They go, oh, well, there Mm -hmm. you are. See, see. There is a creator, I said. Yeah, and he or she is a twisted, evil, nasty person. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I can't remember the exact phrase in someone used once, but it's
0: something along the lines of uh, "just because we can't imagine it doesn't mean it didn't happen," or yeah. like that. The limits, the yeah. limits of uh, evolution, not limited by imagination, or something like that. It was the quote. I, yeah, I
2: like that. Yeah, um it's quoted Neil Phillips, twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I've I just come out of it, but I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, put it that way. It, it seems far too clever, you know, imaginative for me to be make it original. <laughs> Probably heard it somewhere. <laughs>
2: and yeah. the other question was
1: and this is from Grace again. Um, what animal is your
2: favourite underdog? Favourite underdog? Dog fleas. Gosh. On the belly. On the ear. are pretty good. I, I, I like fleas. I do feel sorry for the hedgehog, because hedgehog fleas are pretty large. I mean, hedgehog fleas are very large, and it's only because hedgehogs can't really scratch themselves. So their fleas have got really big, so it's like any other animal having an enormous (laughs) flea. (laughs) Underdog, well, well, uh, the midge, the midge, there you go, the Scottish midge. Now, much maligned, everybody hates it, but I think it is a fabulous animal because it alone is responsible for the fact that large areas of Scotland are unspoiled. Because had none of them, if 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 the species Culicoides impunctatus was removed from the face of the earth, you would have golf courses and condominiums and holiday homes all over Scotland. So I think that I think it's great. I never thought of that. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes perfect sense, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, when when I worked up on um, a little <laughs> Scottish island you know even on that little island you you would get the midges there like you'd go outside to try and like mm. phone phone your family when there was one point on the island you could get phone service you <laughs> can get it anywhere else and that's
2: where they waited
1: <laughs> yeah there's basically you have to like go up to the the high, highest point and then everyone's up there trying to phone their family and i just the thing is, people would only go out on days when it was really windy. So yeah. you're up there, exposed on this little island anyway. It's is one of the old slate quarrying islands. There's not much protection on it. No. Everyone's on the top of the hill with their phones, yeah. in the wind, trying to make phone calls. Because it's the only time you could go out and not
2: get swamped by and midges. It also explains why large parts of the Canadian land is unoccupied because if, if you go further than 100 miles north of the border it's uninhabitable because you've got black flies buffalo gnats mosquitoes midges and they horse flies they are just full on 24 hours a day it's it's hell i mean that's why very few people live further than 100 miles of the u.s border because it's just intolerable a few years
0: ago they filmed spring watch near basildon where i used to work and mm. oh, no, there was a tip next door to it. Pitsy was the area. That area of grazing marsh was is notorious for mosquitoes, mm. and someone had been filming in Napdale for Spring Watch one week, and they came down to Essex, and they said it was worse there. Mm. And, it, and some days it was pretty terrible. you know it we, would take to take a group of school kids around and but like, these are the big mosquitoes rather than your you just your mm. little midges. Mm. and I, I was told that Essex men back in the day, because malaria was prevalent in the area and of course the locals were immune but the you know they used to marry people from other places in Essex and Suffolk and plus like that and the wives wouldn't last a year because oh. they didn't have the immunity it was, it was the last hold out of malaria was in South yeah. Essex oh, yeah.
2: the, the egg in Shakespeare days it was mm. the the egg that's right yeah, yeah.
0: There we go. I still love grazing marsh down there. It's horseflies galore. I once did a dragonfly survey, and it's one of those days where you walk a step and six horseflies land on you. You walk yeah. another step, another six land on you, and uh, pretty as they are, um, I don't like <laughs> Look,
2: I'm not a f- the horse.
1: Yeah. Stop biting me.
0: We've got Southern Migrant Hawker and Southern Emerald on that site. So it's worth the horseflies, <laughs> but yeah, it You're wasn't... Um,
2: probably- well, one of very few people who would say that
0: just about well they are the one insect i try and bot them away but if they get persistent they might well put this way there's one at me once bit me so i retaliated flicked him into the pond and took great satisfaction watching a pond skater bite and suck his inside <laughs> <out>. <laughs> uh, the
1: site the site that i go to for the the big dragonfly roost it's this amazing spectacle and i go down there every single year and I love it but there are wood mosquitoes down there as well mm, mm. and those things just bite through clothing oh, yeah yeah are oh, they just I mean that they, they prefer the exposed flesh and obviously when you're out photographing just you know <laughs> they generally have gloves on so they go for your hands mm. but oh those things go through they will go through your clothing
0: they're mean little I things I wonder about wearing a bikini Victoria when you do it you know <laughs> that's
1: where I'm going wrong <laughs> I, I think
0: it- filming i I made i made the same mistake of wearing a bikini when i did it once so people people thought the bot flower was a bad image now they got that image in (laughs) there yeah
2: that's that's not nice
1: (laughs) people are gonna have to try and sleep after this
2: (laughs) that'll replace the wailing me nightmares (laughs) (laughs) oh dear you're gonna have to edit this because we're we're an hour and 20 now
0: uh with that's nothing with nick baker we've got to three hours <laughs> well, that you're, down gonna get, a bit.
2: you're not going to get three hours out of me mate i tell you <laughs> no no god no i'm not going to
0: get three hours out of me tonight. night <laughs> <No, laughs> tell you what on that note shall we move towards wrapping up but we don't want to wrap up without mentioning because it's our our birthday show we're going to ask obviously there's a pandemic on people some people haven't got jobs and money and stuff so i'm not insisting on anything and I'm, well not expect you to listen to me if i did but if you can spare some money we do have a chosen charity for this year's birthday yes episode and would you like to yeah oh, introduce I, it explain it whatever the word yes, is
2: i will now well i've been to Costa Rica now four times, twice filming and twice heading up a, an adult tour group. And we went to the Osa Peninsula, which is a very biodiverse part. And we met a, a very nice young man there called Jim Alfaro Cordoba. And he is an insect nut, a bit like us. Completely insane about insects. And he has a small insect museum called Insect and he's also acquired 60 hectares of primary forest and it costs them quite a lot to keep it safe because it needs patrolling every week and they have an office to maintain and all the rest and of course with the pandemic they haven't had any tourists for eight months it costs them about 60 Thousand dollars a year, which is not a huge amount, but I have been raising funds for him and his BioSuer, BioSUR, B I O S U R Foundation, every time I can, hand him a hundred or two uh, just here and there, simply to keep him going. So, if anybody out there would like to go to his GoFundMe page, BioSUR Foundation, and give a little bit of cash to Jim Cordova to preserve the Costa Rica, the, the Osa Peninsula forest, a little bit of forest there, and to educate kids about the wonders. And there are some wonders in there. My goodness, insects and of course other animals. I'm sure he would be very grateful, and I would be as well. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll make
1: sure we'll actually put the links out there so you can just. We'll make them easily accessible so people can just click on it.
2: That would be absolutely great. I mean, I. I often think it's better to give a small amount of cash to a small fry. It may become a big fish rather than to put cash into these big outfits where it might get absorbed into admin costs and all the rest of it. You know, the, uh, 50 pounds, 10 pounds w- w- is going to make a big impact. Whereas yeah. if you send it to some huge outfit, you know, it's just it's a pea in the ocean basically
0: We're, we've made little donations and so thank you for coming on the show so uh thank you yeah. just probably, before yeah.
2: we end because we we do we
1: like to spring a surprise on our guests oh, yeah. uh, oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, there's, you know mixed mixed uh mixed responses but george do you have a question for either neil or myself putting yeah. you on the spot
2: yeah, yeah. you no, know, I, I do actually oh, okay neil you work in an Nature Reserve, if you were in charge of some big outfit like the NT or English Heritage or some big outfit like that, let's say English Nature, what what would you do? What would be your plan to sort out the unholy mess that we seem to have got Mm. ourselves into? That's a good question, isn't
0: it? We... <laughs> if if I had a, if I had somewhere with a big body of land, I'd look at probably a bit more rewilding. Though know? to be fair, a lot of things just this it's starting to go that way a little bit. You know, a little bit of beaver reintroduction here in the right places, a little bit more focus on not just conserving one species. Although obviously sometimes you do have to do that in certain patches and areas, but do a bit more experimental re- rewilding. I think. I mean, having seen the results of NEP, not firsthand, but read a lot about them. You know, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, a little bit? And what what would happen if we did it? Because NEP, obviously, they have to run the farm side a bit, a little bit as well. Mm. Yeah, a little bit more where applicable and actually practical, a bit more reintroductions, but not just the big things. Obviously, beavers will create a, we've covered that, or Derek Gal covered that quite well. They're basically, you know, keystained species and suddenly everything comes back. But yeah, I'd, I'd like to, you know, introduce a few we more, some of the underdog things so you know we've done like the checkered skippers and stuff and uh, maybe look at moving more you know like uh, things like wood ants and stuff i I sometimes walk around reserves and think wood ants would do fine here or even moving around blooming meadow ants you go around someone set up a brand new meadow they're missing half the butterflies because there's no meadow ants you know just i just wonder trying some more experimentation i think would be my um, funding more studies into stuff not that's criticizing because a lot of these charities do do a lot of that but maybe more I mean, I yeah,
2: you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great fan of the armed services, of course, but, although we, we need them. But what yeah. I do love about the armed services and the army is that they have large amounts of land where nobody can go.
0: Mm, uh, Salisbury Plains are classic, isn't it?
2: Plain and other places where there's a firing range. And these habitats are just amazing. And because people on dog walkers and dogs and all the rest of it, you know, oh, well, that'd be one thing
0: I'd do was was limit would be limiting dog access and and in some cases all people. <laughs> so so like someone that does outdoor education, my first instinct is, look at this, this isn't amazing? And then people mm-hmm. trash it, and you're like, go yeah. away, <laughs>
2: go away. <laughs> so so Neil, you're you're going to be very very popular as head of Natural England, <laughs> Victoria. I'm going to give you a million pounds you can't spend it on yourself a million pounds okay let's let's be generous i'm going to give you 10 million i'm going to give you 10 million okay yeah what would you use that for
1: <laughs> okay So probably, like an,
2: an, an o- oxford interview question yeah. I'd probably a frog live- reserve. <laughs> yeah a
1: giant frog i'm going to turn the entire world into a frog reserve probably actually like splitting it up and helping to fund some of the smaller like individual people or smaller organizations that i know are working so hard to either protect like something like the osa peninsula which is actually one place i really really want to go but i also have a friend that runs something called frog rescue and i know he's done this amazing work in honduras on the frog species there and you know trying to save them from like the fungal diseases okay Um, i'm
2: going to say it has to be UK. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, OK. <laughs> UK. OK, UK based. Again, I think, you know, there there are some, some people and some organisations, like small organisations around the UK, again, that I think could help, that could do with a little bit more funding to carry out research into different species, how they interact with each other, how they interact with their environment. Certainly an educational aspect of that, really getting children involved more. Uh-huh. Uh, and being uh, able to get them out and getting no, them involved in doing it
2: yeah absolutely there i am a great great advocate of education we, adults are there's no point in changing adults views now it's just too late but children primary school kids that's who you've got to get to now yeah absolutely
1: and then what you think is like you know i've done when i've helped out with wildlife walks with my local wildlife trust and we've had children out on those and it's incredible they're just they find a bloody nose beetle and this thing is like the most exciting thing they've seen and they just want to touch it and play with it and you know we're on when we're trying to find them adders and stuff which is also really cool but you know their enthusiasm for absolutely anything yeah, you know absolutely. that needs to be encouraged and that's that's what I had growing up I had the most amazing biology teacher who from a really young age really just encouraged me and you know I was some incredibly supportive parents and then my teachers at, at secondary school as well which really pushed me in that direction and just supported that enthusiasm and that love and I think that's what we need to give children so um, I I would definitely put it absolutely. towards something like
2: that. I'm- and I could end this by telling you an anecdote from Attenborough who was asked by some person, you know, reporter. He said, oh, Sir David, isn't it marvellous how you, you've retained your childlike enthusiasm for creatures great and small? You know, how, how did you keep your interest up? And Attenborough just looked at him and said, how did you lose yours? Oh, yeah. It's... And that, I think, sums it up.
0: Well, that sounds like a good spot to end, I think. I thought so. <laughs> Yes, yeah, very very good then. yeah
2: sorry it's been absolutely a joy thank you so much for having me on I feel very honored to have been on your anniversary show and I hope you might ask me back sometime
1: oh well, we would love to have you back for sure yeah. um, it's been a real honor and a pleasure to have you join us for our very special one-year anniversary show George so thank you very much
0: thank you yes thank you and i think that's it from us Well, oh, thanks for joining us everybody and do please join us on our live show which will be 16th of november monday at eight o'clock on our instagram
1: yes we will be doing an instagram live so please do come and join us you can come and ask us questions and just join us in a bit of a celebration for our one year anniversary It'd be lovely to see you cheers see you then all right take care bye
0: bye